Our loving Father, we are very grateful. We thank you so much for the privilege to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may press together in such a mighty way that your spirit will speak to our hearts and that you would open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. I know every single one of us have come here with deep heart needs, needs that only you can truly satisfy. And so I am praying that you would perform a miracle tonight and that you would take the spiritually dead and put within us your wonderful words of everlasting life. I pray that you will help us to see that there is hope and there is victory, even in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we leave here at the end of this message different and courage strengthened and more built up than when we came in. For this truly is our prayer that we do humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I enjoy studying, and I enjoy studying many things, but one of the things that I really enjoy studying is the subject of family. My three favorite subjects of Bible study is prophecy, health, and the family. And I believe we can hit all of those this weekend. Because believe it or not, it's all intertwined, one with the other, believe it or not. And so it is that when we study the Word of God, God wants us to understand a very important principle. And I want us to turn our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. I've often shared this verse when I would begin certain messages and to me, this verse never gets tired because the more that I see what's happening even in the landscape of Bible prophecy, I can see that this verse of Scripture never, ever gets tired. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to Ecclesiastes. We're going to consider chapter 1. And I want you to watch what the Bible says as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. And I want you to consider what it says in verse 9. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9, and it says, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there's how many things? There's no new thing under the sun. The Bible lets us know that history has a tendency to repeat itself. When you study the Bible, it is a tremendous amount of sacred history that God wants us to understand that the stories that we read about are things that are going to, in another manner, take place in our very time. The Apostle Paul put it another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go there. In 1 Corinthians, one from the old, one from the new. The Apostle Paul also says something that we would do well to consider. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're now looking at what chapter? Very good. We're going to chapter 10. And I want you to see what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, as we prepare to look at this, I just want to give you a quick backdrop of the story. The Apostle Paul noticed that there were many, many challenges in the church of Corinth. Almost every debased sin that your mind can imagine 
was taking place amongst the people of God in the church of Corinth. There were individuals who were practicing vile practices, self-abuse, individuals who were even sleeping with their own parents, individuals who were fighting and fussing and threatening to go to civil powers to settle their differences and forgetting the power of prayer and communing one with another and trying to settle themselves amongst the family. Lots and lots of issues in the church of Corinth. The Apostle Paul gets to a point that in 1 Corinthians 10, he begins to remind them of their history, their heritage. And as he walks them through their history and their heritage, he starts talking about those incredible days when God did incredible things, like parting the Red Sea. And from verses 1 to 4, Paul starts talking about how God parted the Red Sea, brought the children of Israel through with a mighty hand started to take them on their journey to Canaan land and gave them their beautiful water that they would drink from that rock. And that rock was none other than a representation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But in the midst of God providing so much unto his people, verses 6 through 10 shows how the people were responding. They would complain and they would murmur and they would get caught up in fornication and various sins. They were literally showing God how unthankful they were for his mighty deliverance. And as they're walking through, and Paul is just rehearsing history, he's walking them through history. Paul gets to that wonderful verse in verse 11. And when right there in verse 11, that's the one I want you to read with me. In verse 11, the apostle Paul says, now, all these things, after he'd gone through the history, he says, now, all these things happen unto them for what? And samples. The word and samples in the Greek means types. And every time you have a type, you have to have an anti-type. Whenever you think of type, think of shadow and symbol. Whenever you think of anti-type, think reality. He says all of these things happen unto them for shadows, for symbols. But then he goes on in the verse. He says all these things happen unto them for types. He says, but they are written for our admonition. And then he qualifies the hour. It's not just merely believers. But he says, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world shall come. That's dealing with the believers of the last days. That deals with you and me. So again, Paul says, when you look at history, there is a repetition. Types. There are things that happened in the past that we're going to see manifested in a 2018, 19 and onward version. But they're all built off of the same principles. And this is why whenever you study the Bible, you must understand that even when you're reading the Old Testament, even when you're reading the past, you're actually studying present truth. You're studying truths from the Word of God that apply to you and to me in these very last moments of Earth's history. I don't know if we're really paying attention to the landscape of what's going on in our world right now. One thing that God is reminding me through the consistent scenes of events that are taking place is that this world has a guaranteed death sentence. This world cannot continue in the way that it exists right now. And what makes it even worse is that the Bible actually shows that the things that are happening in this world are not just merely happenstances, but they are things that are going to get worse. 
and worse. The Bible spells it out very powerfully in the book of 2 Timothy. I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, Paul begins to tell us about last day events. That's how he starts the, the chapter off, actually. But I want you to see what Paul says in verse 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, just so we can understand that in the last days, Paul made it very clear how things were going to get. Because sometimes we see things that are happening in our world and we wonder, what's next? What's going to happen next? Is it going to get better? Well, the Bible already answered that question. It's interesting. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, right there in verse 13, notice what the Bible says. It says, but what kind of men? It says, but evil men and seducers shall wax how? Worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Bible is very clear that things are going to get worse. No matter how much people try to prophesy, peace and safety. We are told that this world has a guaranteed death sentence. It's going to get worse. And I thank God for it because every time I see the realities of what's happening in our world, I am learning that my affections for this world are truly being detached. I don't know if you realize it, but some of us still have too much affections for this world. We are still very much attached. There are still places and things and all sorts of stuff that we want to do and accomplish, and we forget that God has a whole existence waiting for us that is so beautiful, so powerful, so holy, sanctified, and actually, watch this word, pleasing, that God says no matter how good you can imagine it, it's better than that. And if only our minds could be broken from the things of this world. You see, God did it for me. I'm going to be honest with you. God did it for me. I have lost my passion and my affections for the things of this world in a very marked manner. But I'm going to tell you, you know what it took for me? It took my chest being split open. It took an open heart surgery experience. I lied to you not. It's like one of the best things. It's strange what I'm about to say. But the best thing that's ever happened to me in recent times was open heart surgery. That sounds weird, doesn't it? It's almost like I would want to recommend it to you. <laughs> but I know many of you would say, nah, I think I'll pass on that. Now, God wants to do an open heart surgery. You see, the word heart in the Bible means mind, and God wants to open your mind. God wants you to, he wants to show you wondrous things out of his word. He wants to ignite our minds with so much heavenly bliss that we no longer sing it, but we actually believe it, that the things of this world will go strangely dim and we will literally begin to long for heaven. How many of you right now sit down and talk about what you're going to do when you get to heaven? I want you to think about that. Praise God. I remember when we, my family and I, when we were living in Georgia and we had our little country property, and I remember we were there, my children were young, and we had a Sabbath day where we were together worshiping the Lord, and then we came back home and we just enjoyed some time on our land. And when we were on our land, I remember I told my children, I said, okay, I said, let's go into the world of imagination. What are you going to do in the new heaven and the new earth? And I remember how one by one, my children would start talking about, oh, daddy, I'm, I'm going to ride an elephant. My son Jared, who was in love with all these animals, these beasts of the field, Jared was like, I'm going to ride a lion. Yep, that's me. There you go. He said, Dad, I'm going to ride a lion. 
And then others were saying about, I can't wait to fly to other galaxies. And it was an amazing time. We spent at least an hour and we were all just sitting down and talking about what we're going to do when we get over on the other side. The Apostle Paul says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are supposed to be dead and our lives are supposed to be hid in Christ in God. And the reality is, is that as much as God's counsel is so clear, many of us are still planning a lot of things. Many of us wake up, go throughout our day, and all we do is we work and we imagine for the temporal while we forget the eternal. And this is one of the reasons why God keeps letting crazy stuff break loose. is because God tries to snap us out of these dreams so he can prepare our minds for the dream. And so the Lord consistently gives us the reality from the prophetic pen to help you and I to sober up and to realize that this world is not the place that you want to set a lot of long-term plans. I'm going to be honest with you. One of the things, one of the verses of scripture that blows my mind every time I read it, and especially now, a passage of scripture that, I mean, it just, it just hits me. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to look at this. I believe it's 2 Peter 3. I hope I'm right. Let's see here. Let me go ahead and see if I can pull that up real quick. 2 Peter. And I want you to watch this now. Let's see that. Oh, there it is. 2 Peter 3. Yep. Praise the Lord. 2 Peter 3. Now, I want you to watch this. In 2 Peter 3, I want you to look carefully as we look at verses 11 and 12. This, this really grabs my mind because I realize that I think our great struggle is we don't believe this. I'm going to just be honest with you. We're going we're gonna to have real talk today. It's like, I mean, I really want to talk to you from my heart, and I want you to hear what your brother's saying to you, all right? The Bible says in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to consider verse 11, it says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, talking about this earth, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Now watch verse 12. It says, looking for, and then what else? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I don't know if you realize what that verse just said. It says, understanding that this world has a death sentence, understanding that this world's going down, it's going to dissolve. He says, what manner of people ought we to be? And then it says, we are to be holy in all conversation. That's our lifestyle. That's not just how we talk. The conversation in the Greek means more your lifestyle. Holy in all of our conversation and everything that we do, right? Then it says, looking for, having high expectation. But then the next part is what the part that gets me. It says, and hasting. Another way of saying hasting is hurrying up. Making something happen faster. Something that is definitely going to happen, that we actually have been given the power 
that we can make it happen faster. What is the thing that we're hasting? That coming of the Lord. In other words, you, to a very strange degree, have been given the privilege and the power by heaven to be reunited with your deceased loved ones. Those people that you cry all the time about because they're gone, that you love and can't wait to see when we sing, When We All Get to Heaven. God says, the more that I can get my people to believe and to cooperate with me, he says, you can actually make this thing move in faster pace. And the Lord can come. And the more that I contemplate that verse is the more that I said, Father, I got it. Our issue is we don't believe the gospel. Because there's no way that we can believe what we just read. And some of us function the way we function with day-to-day living. Do you understand that? Is it all right to come face-to-face with ourselves? Like, for real? The great crisis that God is having with his Israel today is the same crisis that God had with his Israel of old. I told you, history repeats itself. What was the big issue with Israel back in those days? Unbelief. That's why they didn't enter into the rest. Unbelief. Going to church, seeing the miracles, studying the word, spending time in prayer, we don't really believe because our lifestyle testifies to it. We're making long-term plans to pitch tent here. And that's why God keeps allowing disruptions to happen in our lives and even in our plans so he can steal away those affections. My brothers and sisters, I don't know what you'll have to go through for God to get you to a place that he can finally get you and I to wake up to the point that we no longer sing it, but we actually live, I surrender all. But this is what the Lord is waiting for. And so until then, he's going to keep letting things happen. Evil men and seducers are going to get worse and worse. And there was a time we used to watch this stuff on TV, but I don't know if you've noticed, but these things are getting closer and closer to our own homes. There was a time we used to see everybody else's home was messed up. But now we're starting to realize, wait a minute, my home's messed up. There was a time we used to say everybody else is getting sick. And now all of a sudden, we're getting sick. There was a time we used to say, oh, that's their problem. And now we're coming closer and closer to realizing our problems. And some of us actually have the nerve to curse God. My brothers and my sisters, God with love and abundance in his heart is simply trying to wake us up. And he's trying to say, don't pitch your tent here. Because whatever it is that you're trying to prepare for in this world, God says, magnify it times infinity. And that's what I got in store for you. If you could just simply cooperate with me. As I said, our world is getting worse and worse. And the Bible told us this. Go to Luke 17. Notice what the Bible says. You see, the scriptures told us all these things. But the reality is, is that somehow we fell back asleep. Some people live on stimulus. 
Some people have a modern day life support system. You know, a life support system is a very interesting thing. There's nothing on the inside that's really keeping you alive. So therefore, there's a machine on the outside that has to keep you alive. And as long as that machine is running, we still have life. But if we were left even for a few moments to just rely on what's within, many of us would die. My brothers and sisters, many of us are spiritually living like that right now. Spiritually speaking, many of us are living on a spiritual life support. We are constantly relying on things outside to keep us awake, to keep us attentive, to keep us alert. But there's very few people that have life on the inside. We wait until a crisis comes and then we get serious. We wait until calamities happen and then we get serious. We wait for events to take place and then we get serious. That's like a spiritual life support. God says, listen, why do you always need something to happen for you to have joy in Jesus, for you to have faith, for you to have trust? We should learn how to be alive and awake whether something's happening or not. This is why you got a lot of people in seven-day Adventism specifically that are constantly looking for things to stimulate and stir up the people in their messages because the good old plain gospel is too boring. People want to hear something, the latest and the greatest. Give me some new stimulus. Hit me up with a new drug. But if somebody just simply tells the story of the cross, if somebody simply talks about the beauty of the sanctuary, if somebody just simply talks about that wonderful man of whom I don't know how you can behold him and not say, oh, Lord, help me to be changed and be just like you. Nowadays, it seems like people got to hear about dirt. You know, a lot of people right now are keeping their Adventism alive on dirt. Yeah. They go to certain websites and say, tell me the latest, Mr. Preacher, of all the evils they are doing. I know what I'm talking about. It's almost like our spirituality begins to die down until some external information comes our way and then we get fired up again. My brothers and sisters, God wants us to understand. A lot of these external things that are happening in our world should not be the means to keep us alert, but it should be a means for us to say, praise the Lord, Jesus is showing signs that he's coming soon. Let me be busy and go out and tell those who are asleep, you're supposed to be awake, but to tell those who are asleep that they need to awake. Real quick, let me show you something about Jesus. Can I show you something about Jesus with prophecy real quick? Let me show you this. Go to the book of Mark chapter 1. Keep your finger on Luke 17. We'll come back to it. But notice Mark chapter 1, because I, I, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. Notice what the Bible says in Mark chapter 1. The Bible says in the book of Mark, we're going to what chapter? We're just going to chapter 1, and I want you to watch what it says in verses 14 and 15. Watch the text carefully. What did Jesus do when he saw prophecy being fulfilled? Notice, the Bible says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Did Jesus see prophecy being fulfilled? What did Jesus do for himself when he saw the prophecy being fulfilled? 
What did he do for himself? Nothing. When he saw prophecy being fulfilled, what did he do for others? He went out and gave the gospel. You see, this is the point Jesus was trying to bring across. When we see prophecy being fulfilled, it's not supposed to startle us. Jesus saw the prophecy being fulfilled, but he was already a student of prophecy. He was already living a life in harmony with the revelation of prophecy. So when he saw prophecy being fulfilled, he was already awake, but how much the more he availed himself to help other people wake up. That'd be nice if we would do more of that. Why do you constantly need a whole bunch of stuff to happen in front of you for you to stay awake? Jesus was awake because he had unadulterated communion with his father. Jesus was awake. And so the more that prophecy was being fulfilled, he just simply said, praise the Lord. All right, let's go out. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been studying the book of Daniel 9 and verse 26. You know what it says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye now and believe the gospel. He was using those current events and those evidences to show those people who were asleep to say, wake up, the prophecies are being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is ready to enter your heart. But it seems like some of us are so busy viewing, so busy listening, doing far too little studying, doing very, very little praying and pleading, that now we need somebody to keep us awake all the time, and we always wait for the next new event. It doesn't have to be like that. So when we see the things that I'm about to share with you right here, it's not designed, even though it may have to, because some of us just not only are asleep, but we love to sleep. And we love to slumber. And my hope and prayer is that if you are one of those people tonight that was sleeping, and if you do wake up, I pray that you learn how to commune with Jesus so you can stay awake and learn a higher stimulus to stay awake merely then just seeing all these things come to pass and you're getting awake but more so that we can go and touch the lives of others you're going back to Luke 17 the Bible makes it very clear that the world was going to get worse and worse and the reason we know it is because of Luke 17 the Bible says in book in the book of Luke the 17th chapter and I want you to consider Luke 17 we're going to consider verses 28 to 30 and the Bible makes it very clear that, yes, our world is getting worse and worse. No question about it. And here is an example. The Bible says in Luke, the 17th chapter, and when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Luke 17, verses 28 to 30, it says, likewise also, as it was in the days of who? Lot. They did eat. They drank, they brought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Christ made it clear that the same condition that Sodom and Gomorrah was in, he said that so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I want you to notice this because when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, tell me on your mind what you're thinking. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, what, what are you thinking? When you think of as it was in the days of Lot, and you're thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the thing that comes up in your mind? What are you talking about? Huh? Pride? Sodomy? 
Okay, what else? Homosexuality, yes. Aren't these the things that naturally come up in our mind? Well, go to the book of Ezekiel 16. Notice what the Bible says. Now watch this. Because Jesus said, when you see all of these things coming to pass, know that my coming is near. Therefore, if you're sleeping, you should wake up. But as you're awake, you need to get to work. You know how it is. Every morning when you wake up, you go to work. Christ says, all right, if you're sleeping, wake up, but go to work. The Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, we're looking at chapter 16. And I want you to see what the text says. Ezekiel 16, right there, verses 49 and 50. In Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, look at what the Bible clearly spells out as it pertains to the days of Sodom. The Bible says in Ezekiel 16, we're looking at verse 49. And it says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What was the things that was listed as iniquity? Number one, pride. What else? Fullness of bread or gluttony. Abundance of what? Do you know, my brothers and sisters, that when parents, when we leave our children with nothing to do, and they have an abundance of idleness, we are repeating the iniquities of Sodom. Can you imagine that? Do you see how easy it would be to say, oh, look at those sodomites over there when we see two people? Right now, I live in western Massachusetts. And in western Massachusetts, oh yeah, there's a concentration in that area, especially of those who are living of the lesbian lifestyle. So there's a precious restaurant that opened up there, and often I will see sisters walking in hand in hand, kissing and hugging and all of that. The natural Christian mind is going to say, oh, how deplorable, how terrible, how much of an abomination that is. Now, these things are true biblically, but nevertheless, the key is, what about, do we have that same disdain and disgust when we see an abundance of idleness happening in our homes amongst our precious youth? If we only understood, Lord, have mercy, I'm inviting Sodom in my house. And so God wants to broaden our understanding to say, listen, Sodom is definitely dealing with sodomy and it's definitely dealing with these type of things that are definitely lewd. And the Bible is going to spell it out in verse 50. But the key is, is that don't neglect these other parts. Because there are many things that make up the manifestation of the days of Lot. So, yes, pride. What else? Fullness of bread. What else? Abundance of idleness was in her hand and in her daughters. Neither did she do what? Strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Do you know that when we neglect to strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, God says that's sodomy. Do you understand this? That's why that, that, that old saying, when you point one finger, you got several fingers pointing. Very true statement. Because again, our dear brothers and sisters, listen, some of the sweetest people I've ever met are in the LGBT community. I'm going to tell you that. I have been in many places where I've run into people who are living gay lifestyles and so on. And I have found, man, they are some of the kindest, nicest people, very warm, very caring very helpful, etc. But yet our standard makes us say, mm-mm, wrong. 
and we come down real hard. Now again, I believe we should tell the truth in love. Okay? I believe we should tell the truth. I believe that we owe to the LGBT community to definitely say, listen, in the name of Jesus, this is a form of lifestyle and these are patterns and passions of desire that were not originated from the heart of God. God had a different plan. And we need to show them that plan and we need to show them the beauty of how when you get off the road through the power of Christ, you can get back on that road. We need to love those in the LGBT community enough to make these precious statements and make it plain. But when we unduly come down on individuals, God says, be careful. Because God says, do you have an abundance of idleness? Are you indulging pride? Are you a glutton? Do you understand what God is doing? Do you strengthen the hands of the poor and the needy? God is looking at that. Now, verse 50 gets even deeper. In verse 50, it says, and they were haughty. That means stuck up. They were conceited. They thought they were all that. God says, this is the iniquity of Sodom. Not only says were they haughty, it says, and they were haughty and committed abomination. I have a whole study on every abomination written in Scripture. If you were to see everything that God calls an abomination... It is true. Yes, again, Leviticus 18, etc. Mankind lying with mankind as with womankind. That's an abomination. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from that. I agree 100% with that. But my brothers and sisters, you would be amazed at the other things God calls an abomination. You need to study Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. The Bible makes it very clear. Six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. And God begins to go down that list. My brothers and sisters, we might, if we carefully study that thing, we will see ourselves in that picture. And so what God is saying is that the world is getting worse and worse. People are filled with an abundance of idleness. People are constantly selfish and self-focused, and it's all about me and mine and what I'm going to do to take care of me, and I don't know about you. People literally are practicing sodomy, and we don't even realize it. And God says it's going to get worse and worse. But you know what God raised up, right? God raised up the church. You see, when God knew all these problems was going to be in the world, you know what he did? He raised up the church. God says, I want my people to be a lighthouse. And I want my people to go ahead and show all these folks practicing wickedness and darkness. I want them to be the light. But then notice what God said about the church in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says. Again, we don't have to look far. We can see that right now we are definitely living in times that are absolute fulfillments of what God has said. Now, again, when we look at the world, we see wickedness. We see all those things laid out we just studied in Ezekiel 16. We see that it's getting worse and worse. But God raised up the lighthouse, the church, to go ahead and be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But then God says, all right, I'm going to raise up the church. But then notice what God said about the church. We're in 2 Timothy Look at what it says in chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, starting at verse 1, this know also, that in the last days, what kind of times? Perilous times shall come. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, Traitors, heady, high-minded, 
lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now watch verse 5. Then it says, having a form of, that's not the world. God was not describing the world. God was describing the church. The church is a place that has a form of godliness. The world is wicked and they're bold about it. You can clearly see that through the music that plays through the malls and through the streets. You can clearly see that through the festivals that are celebrated. You can clearly see that through the billboards that are put up on the streets. We can clearly see the world is like, look, we're sinful, we're wicked, and we don't care. But the church is where there's a form of godliness. But according to verse 5, what are they lacking? Power. They're lacking power. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. And that's what a lot of people are doing with the church. They're turning away. I'm from the hip-hop industry. I am from hip-hop culture. I used to tell people that I don't listen to hip-hop. When people say, you listen to hip-hop? I said, no, I don't listen to hip-hop. This is when I was in the world. I said, I don't listen to hip-hop. They said, no, 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 don't you listen to hip-hop? I said, no, I don't listen to hip-hop. I would say, I am hip-hop. You understand that? Hip-hop was more than just music you listen to. It was a whole entire lifestyle. It was a culture. It was the way you walked. It was the way you talked. It was the way you dressed. It was the way you would reason. Hip-hop was a, a complete way of living. And so when God called me away from hip-hop, my mind could not grasp when I saw hip-hop gospel. When I started seeing the church trying to get their jam on, when I started seeing things happening in the churches where people were literally singing and swinging and celebrating and you had gospel rappers and all of these other things. And I started looking at this. I was like, wait a minute, hold up. I left that. I did not expect to come into this movement where I was supposed to learn about holiness. And now I'm learning Leviticus chapter 10 and I'm seeing a mixture of the holy and the profane. When I was in hip hop, I saw mini skirts. When I came into the church, I was shocked to see mini skirts. When I left hip-hop, I left worldly thinking and cussing and swearing. When I came into the church, I saw all of the same things. And so what I realize is that today, instead of the church converting the world, the world is literally converting the church. And this is why you can almost see a complete mimic of what's happening in the churches today, and you're seeing it as a reflection of that which is happening in the world. And God knew that that problem was going to, going to exist. And so when God saw that the churches was going to go down this wicked, creeping compromise, you know what God did? God says, I'm going to raise up a remnant. God says, I'm going to raise up a remnant church. A last day church filled with my last day people that are going to understand the ministry of the judgment and they are going to bring everybody in harmony with me. And do you know when God was developing these people? Look at what God said about them. Go to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, look at what God said. God was raising up that church and God knew that that church was going to be a tremendous blessing. 
And I want you to see, forgive me, Revelation 3. And I want you to watch what the Bible says in Revelation 3. As God was uniting his people to come together, preparing to produce a remnant that was going to carry forward his work in the last days, look at what God had to say about him. You see, God went through seven churches. We're up to church six. And of all the other churches, God would always have some pros and cons to say. He would say, here's what you did that was good, and here's what you did that was bad. When God got to this church, this sixth church, when God got to the church of Philadelphia, right there in verse 7, look at what God said about this church. God said in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast done what? You've kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have Love thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. For him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit say unto the church. God says, this is my word to those precious souls. I better would say those precious soldiers that was standing for his truth. God says, I'm getting ready to set up my remnant, and it's going to be those who are coming out of this Philadelphian estate. But the problem is that once God began to endow all of the final closing truths upon those people, gave them the highest riches of heaven, poured out upon them a righteous understanding of God's words, as God poured it all out upon them, you know what those people did? They started to love the message so much that they started to do what a lot of people do. You know, sometimes when you get a lot of blessings, you can get caught up. It's kind of like sometimes when you're blessed with beautiful hair, you want to flaunt it everywhere you go. You get a beautiful face, you're constantly in that mirror talking about how beautiful you are. And when you see others that don't look like you, sometimes you might even compare yourself among yourselves. Where God says that is not wise. The more that we have wisdom and knowledge and understanding, we begin to look down on those that don't have the same wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that we have. And as they were endowed with the precious gifts of God, they got to a place where God realized, you're missing the mark, remnant. God says, yes, it's true. I gave you the highest of my gifts. I gave you my choicest blessings. I gave it to you that you might give. But what is the testimony of Scripture? Even the remnant people of God, the Bible shows, are getting worse and worse. It's not just the world. It wasn't just the churches. But it's even those in the remnant. God saw you have a problem. 
we have a problem. What is that problem? It's right there in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. And so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with good and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Let me tell you something. I believe one of the hardest things for us to accept is that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And do you want to know the acid test? The day that any of us believe that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, we will never say things like, this is my house, and I will run it the way I choose to run it. We'll never say, this is my bank account, and I'll spend my money how I want it. We would never say, this is my life, and I'm going to do what I want to do with it, because why in the world would you trust somebody who's wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? If somebody came to you and said, hi, I am deceitful above all things, and I'm a desperately wicked person, let me give you some counsel. Would you take counsel from that person? If they said, let me show you how to manage your money. Let me show you how to run a marriage. Let me show you how to run a home. We would never give an individual like that even our time of day. But the problem is, is that that individual is you. That individual is me. How many times do we make decisions for our lives and we have no word for it? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. How many of you, how many of you chose your career and maybe God had nothing to do with it? A lot of us literally, it's almost like we write out a plan and we put it in God's face and say, here, bless it. And God says, excuse me, no, 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 it, it was supposed to work backwards. I was supposed to write out the plan and bless it and you were supposed to follow. There are very few people that are living the full potential of why God raised them up. We're just functioning and we're doing a lot of stuff. And some of us are going to end up, if we're not careful, we'll end up like Samson. Samson died. Samson was saved. But he did not fulfill in the plan that God set for his life. The plan for his life. That's what happens when you run your own thing. And so what God is trying to show us is that this is the issue with Laodicea. We are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, but we don't believe it. And as a result of that, there are many things that are happening even amongst the remnant. Where we're literally getting worse and worse. And it's happening on both sides. You know, I like to make this point because it's imperative. Yes, it is true. There are some in the remnant that hold position of leadership. And many a times there is a function of arbitrary, pharisaical authority over the people of God. Where we are seeking to be another man's conscience. You must believe and you must work the way we say or else. ABC disciplines and penalties. There are some who function like that and they testify that their minds are not being connected with Jesus. I remember in Mark chapter 9, one day, John saw some people that were working for the master. 
And when they were working for Jesus, John says, Master, let's stop them. Let's forbid them because they are preaching in your name, but they're not with us. Jesus, the master teacher, the master pattern man, Jesus said, leave them alone. Jesus said, if they are not against us, they're for us. They don't have to be under us. But if they're not against us, then they're for us. Leave them alone. And so today we have some who are, again, arbitrary, pharisaical individuals who try to lord over God's heritage. And God says, you are out of order. Leave them alone. There are many, not all, there are many that are not against us. They're for us. Support them. But the same way that there are individuals who can get caught up in themselves and begin to do all these things and disconnect themselves from God on the side of leadership, there are many of those who work on the side of laity, those who are the unbalanced, overzealous, unsanctified, independent fanatics. And there are many of those on that side that will also take the weapons of God's word and turn it against the church. Post videos about it and do all sorts of things to try to attack God's church and God's people, even the ones who are doing the work. God says, you are out of order. God says, I have not endorsed these type of ministries either. The extremes are on both sides. Arbitrary, pharisaical leaders, unsanctified, overzealous, unbalanced, fanatical independence. And God says, neither one of them are the ones that I'm using. And so in the remnant, things are getting crazy because we're seeing more of those two camps and the question is, where are those people that's not on the right and not on the left, but where are the people that's right in the center, following exactly what Jesus said? And you know what's interesting about all these camps? Whether it be the world, whether it be the churches, or whether it be the issues in the remnant, you know the one thing that they all have in common? They all took their eyes off of Jesus at some point in their journey. They all took their eyes off of him. Started consulting self and looking at our ways of doing things and our way of handling things. And this is the great issue, the greatest enemy that we have to fight with is self. And this is why when the world, the churches, and even the issues are in the remnant, when these things are happening, the question is, what does the world need now? And the answer is very simple. The answer is right here. The world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. They need to see a balanced revelation of Jesus. Now, my brothers and sisters, I mean, I want you to think with me on this. Knowing what's going on in our world, knowing what's happening amidst all the churches, understanding what's even happening in the midst of the remnant. God says we need a solution. That solution is found in Christ. We must behold him. 
We must get to that place that we behold him so much that by beholding, we become changed. See, notice, it says the world needs today what it needed 1900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. A great work of reform is demanded, and it is only through the grace of Christ that the work of what? Restoration, physical, mental, and spiritual can be accomplished. Notice that. The great work of reform is demanded, and it, oh, it is only through the grace of Christ that the work of restoration, mental, physical, spiritual, this is the only way that it's going to be accomplished. Ministry of Healing 143, paragraph 2. What is God trying to say to you and I? He's saying the only way that we're going to see things change in our world, the only way things are going to be impacted in those churches, the only way that things will even change right in the midst of the remnant body, we got to behold the master. We must begin to see him, study him, and seek to practice him. And the question is, where do we begin this restoration work? God has made it so clear that in truth we can't miss it. You see, when you go to the book of John chapter 1, notice what Jesus said. We're going to bring out some very key points that I want you to notice in John, the first chapter. And I want you to catch this because God wants to make it crystal clear to our hearts. Where should this work begin? The Bible says in John chapter 1, it's a very simple point, talking about Jesus when he came, the word, when he came. When Jesus came, the Bible says in John 1, right there in verse 11, it says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Where did Jesus begin his ministry? He began his ministry amongst his own. You see, before he would impact the world, before he would impact the churches, before he would even impact the remnant, the first place he had to impact was his home. He had to impact his own family. He had to come amongst his own. He came unto his own. That's where he started his ministry. What's the lesson for us? The lesson is very simple. The restoration and uplifting of humanity begins in the home. Ministry Healing 349, God says, listen, if we're going to see things change in the world, if we're going to see the other churches impacted, if we're going to see revival and reformation in the remnant, it all has to begin in the home. First things first, this is the priority. Some of us are losing fast and furious the people in our own home while we're trying to evangelize others outside of our home. We are out of gospel order. God makes it clear this is not going to work. It's not his blueprint. It's not his plan. And so God wants us to understand that when we begin to work, when we begin to covenant with God, Lord, I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of your solution. God says that solution begins in the sanctuary of your home. You see, I believe with all of my heart that some of the great problems we're seeing, LGBT lifestyle, the things that we're seeing, immorality, sexual immorality, the thing that we're seeing, massive divorce and broken marriages, where does it all come from? It comes from a mismanagement of the gospel being clearly taught and demonstrated in the home. And as a result of a lack of Christ in the home, the devil got his foot in there and boom. Now we got divorces, broken marriages, strange marriages, 
then all these strange lifestyles. Young people, I did a meeting, I was doing a training in Philadelphia, and a young person came up to me, Brother Lemon, this was right at the time when of course it was, you know, it, 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 it's almost hot and fashionable now to, to say I, I think, uh, you know, for a boy to say I think I like guys, and for a girl to say I think I like girls, it's, it's becoming like cool. You know, it's almost like, because the, the, there are a lot of people ready to applaud you. Even the churches are doing that. The churches are like, hey, you know, rainbows outside, and they're not thinking anything about the days of Noah. Everybody's making it sound like it's okay. It's okay. A young person comes up to me and says that. I said, listen, sit down. I said, what makes you say that? I don't know. Just seems like a lot of people are doing it now. And I started thinking, yeah, I, I think I, I too like certain people. I said, listen, where's your parents? Over there? I said, give me a second. Let me talk with your parents. Talk with those parents, my brothers and sisters. When you saw how broken that home was, it became elementary to me. I said, well, here we go. This is why this happens. You see, like never before, prophetically, because we're about to close this out, prophetically, God is showing us the solution to the world, the solution to impact the churches, the solution to bring a revival and reformation amongst the remnant. It's going to start with those who cooperate with Jesus by bringing him back into their homes. The more that Christ is in our homes is the easier it is. But my brothers and sisters, you got to understand, for Jesus to come in, that means that you got to go out. You got to understand that, family. And that's what we're going to hit real hard tomorrow. I'm telling you, we're going to talk about it. If Christ is going to come in, you and I got to go out. There's no room on the throne of our heart for both of us. And so it is that Jesus makes it clear. He says, listen, this is what's happening. You see, in the home, two central figures, that husband and that wife, the gift of marriage, the blessed gift of marriage. Jesus loves marriage so much that when you read it in Ephesians 5, to 32, and you just write it down, Jesus says, look, wives, I want you to reverence your husbands. Husbands, I want you to love your wives. And then in verse 32, Jesus says, I understand that this is a mystery, but all this counsel that I'm giving to the husband and wife, Jesus says, I'm actually showing you how I relate to the church. This is, this is how I relate to the church. If you want to study what marriage should be like, study the Bible. When you watch the interactions of God with his people, that is how a husband is to deal with his precious bride. When you watch when the church was obedient to God, you are watching how the wife is to be to the husband. It's beautiful, practical lessons. And the Old Testament brings it out far more magnified than the new. If you really watch it, it's beautiful. And so what God was actually showing is that this was the lesson book of how he wanted us to see how this institution that has been broken down can be rebuilt again. You see, we're told an in inspiration in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The first divine institution that God made was the Sabbath. And the second divine institution he made before sin touched this planet was marriage. 
And I find it very interesting that God is saying to his last day remnant people, he says, I want those divine institutions restored. Because the world has come together to get rid of God's Sabbath, and the world has come together to totally erase God's plan of marriage. And that's why I believe with all of my heart, we are living in the time of Nehemiah. I, I often say that. I always encourage people. I say, study Nehemiah. When you study Nehemiah, I don't know how you can miss it. Watch this. Go to Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. If you look at Nehemiah 13, I want you to watch this. I don't know if you ever caught this. Ne the days of Nehemiah are literally to be relived today. One of the things I love about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah was a reformer. You and I are reformers. We should be instruments in God's hands that his plans are being reformed back into our day and our society. Now, I want you to watch this. When you look at Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, watch what the Bible says now. Very, very powerful. Nehemiah, we're going to what chapter? Amen. Chapter 13. Watch this. Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. Now, notice the institutions. The divine institution of God. Sabbath and marriage. I found it very interesting that that's the very things that God impressed upon the heart of Nehemiah. Notice this. Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 15. In Nehemiah 13 and verse 15, what does the Bible say? It says, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, what evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Verse 18, did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city, yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Do you see how Nehemiah is literally bringing about a Sabbath reform? Do you see how he's doing that? He's showing them. He's saying, look, what are you guys doing? You're at the walls buying from these guys that are selling. You're not supposed to be buying and selling on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah is literally bringing it back. He says, don't you realize that our nation suffered calamities for profaning the Sabbath? I don't know if you understand, you just read prophecy just now, because we're told in the book Great Controversy, page 590, that that is going to be the very argument that they are going to use for all these calamities that are happening, all these hurricanes and everything else, the dropping of the economy. They're saying, they're going to say it's all because of the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, and we need to come back to it. They're going to use this argument of Nehemiah. They're just going to fix it on the apostate day rather than God's seventh-day Sabbath. But nevertheless, the key is Nehemiah was bringing everybody to faithful Sabbath observance. But he didn't stop there, did he? Notice what it says now going on to verse 19. It says, And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants set I at the gates that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. And so their merchants and sellers of all kind of wear lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. I want you to think about this. They're literally hanging out at Jerusalem trying to wait for an opportunity to sell to the people of God. So Nehemiah got some boldness. And notice what he says in verse 21. Then I testified against them and said unto them, why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will do what? 
Nehemiah said, I'll lay hands on you. And God was actually with him. Nehemiah said, I will lay hands on you. And from that time forth, came they no more on the Sabbath day. Now watch this. Verse 23. In those days also. So not only was the Sabbath being profaned and they wanted to bring them back to the Sabbath. Now look at verse 23. It says, in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of who? Ashdod of Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? One of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chase him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah was not only used by God to bring back the institution of the Sabbath, but Nehemiah was also being used by God to bring back the righteous institution of marriage. We are called to do the work of Nehemiah. You see, you can go outside and you can tell gay marriage all you want that that's a bad thing, but when the folks in gay marriage say, well, I'll tell you this much, you're divorcing just as much as us. You're divorcing more than us. Where's your power? Don't just tell me about a God who said that you can get married to the opposite sex. Show me the blessing and the benefit of doing it. If our marriages are broken and busted, then what's the argument? We have no argument. God wants us to understand that we were supposed to be a model. We were supposed to show through our marriages a picture of Jesus. That's what God wanted. This is why I'm telling you, family, look at what it says right here. We need Nehemiahs in this age of the world who shall arouse the people to see how far from God they are because of the transgression of his law. Nehemiah was a reformer. And it says a, a godly man raised up for an important time as he came in contact with evil and every kind of opposition, fresh courage and zeal was aroused. His energy and determination inspired the people of Jerusalem and strength and courage took the place of feeble and feebleness and discouragement. His holy purpose, his high hope, his cheerful consecration to the work were contagious. The people caught the enthusiasm of their leader and in his sphere, each man became a Nehemiah and helped to make strong the hand and heart of his neighbor. Here is a lesson for ministers of the present day. Bible Commentary, Book 3, 1137, Paragraph 2. God wants us to understand 
that he wants us to be Nehemiahs in these last days. God wants us to understand our world is in trouble. The churches are in trouble. Even the remnant is in trouble. And God wants a restoration work to be done, but every restoration work must begin in our home. And as that work is done faithfully in our home, through the power and presence of Jesus, my brothers and sisters, how much easier it shall be to go out of our home now and to touch the lives of all of those around us in the remnant. When we go to visit those churches that are called Babylon that we can say come out of her, they will want to come out because they see something better in your life and in mine. And when we go throughout this world, finally, we can light up the world with the glory of God for real, for real. And God wants us to understand that this is available to us if we'll cooperate. But as I told you, for Jesus to come in, it means we got to go out. It means we're going to have to understand that word surrender on a whole deeper and different level. My brothers and sisters, the what kind of evidence? Is anything better than greatest? The greatest evidence of the power of Christianity that can be presented to the world is a well-ordered, well-disciplined family. This will recommend the truth as nothing else can. For it is a living witness of its practical power. Remember, a gospel that is not practical is a worthless gospel. It's practical power upon the heart. Adventist home, page 32, paragraph 2. God says it very clear. God says, listen. If we can let Jesus in our heart. Now, parents, I'm going to make, let you in on something. Husbands and wives, I'm going to let you in on something. The day that you decide to do this, and I want you to hear me clear because we're, we're, we're at the end of our study. When we're in our home and it's still my home, my way, and there's a way we can twist even the word of God and make it seem like God's in agreement with me rather than us being in agreement with God. Been there and done that. When we really surrender and we understand what, what that means practically, and we're going to study that tomorrow, when this really starts to take place and you covenant with God for real and say, Lord, we're going to plug up every hole in our home every hole. Right now we got holes in our home. We know we do. There's those little areas of cheating, those little areas of disobedience, those little areas where we know to do right, but we're still not doing it. We got the nerve to talk about victory over sin and latter rain and all these other things. And we got all these areas in our lives where we know we are in violation. God says, I will never put my seal on such a soul. God wouldn't do it. The people who get the seal of God are those who are settled. Both intellectually and spiritually, I will not be moved. By the grace of God, I'm going to do everything he say. Revelation put it very clear, didn't he? John the Revelator said, they follow the lamb whithersoever, whatever Jesus says, they do it. I'm going to show you what that looks like. Very practical tomorrow. When we make a decision to live that way and to govern our home that way, 
I have a warning for you. All hell is going to break loose. And the devil is going to show you who he is on a whole different level. Because even the devil will leave you and I alone when we're living a half-stepping walk with God. Because he already says, I already got you. But when you truly try to say, take your hands off my son. Take your hands off my daughter. When you begin to live a life and say, that is it, no more. Anger, bitterness, and resentment towards my husband. No more anger, bitterness, and resentment towards my wife. I choose to trust God. I choose to let God be the solution to my problems. I choose to handle things in the manner of Christ. When we get that way, my brothers and sisters, the devil's going to show his head in a way he's never shown it to us before. And the reason I say, I say this with complete authority because, oh yeah, the day my wife and I made that covenant, I've never seen Satan like that. I'm being honest. I've seen the devil many a times. I've, I've observed his actions and his ways. I've seen the devil work through people. I've been in other countries where people literally were behaving, they were demon-possessed. I've seen a lot of stuff. But when my wife and I made that, my wife and I would sit down, we'd talk about it sometimes, like, honey, have you ever seen it get this hot? Have you ever seen the fight get this fierce? And it's like God has been showing us stuff about ourselves. There was a lot of areas that I was thinking I was all right, and God was like, you are all wrong. And it hurts so bad. But at the same time, it's the most glorious experience we need. It's the most glorious experience. I remember one time I said to that father figure of mine, Thomas Jackson, under the pressure of all of the trials that was going on in my life and in my heart and in my home. And I remember I looked him in the eyes and I said, Dad, I said, it feels like I'm being ground to powder. And those are the exact words that I used. I said, it feels like I'm being ground to powder. And he looked at me in that giant way that he looks at you. And I saw his cheeks go up in a smile. And I got tears in my eyes. And he's smiling. And I said, what are you smiling about? You know, as respectfully as I could, because I really respect him like a, a father in my life. But I was like, what are you smiling about? And he said, this is good. And I said, what do you mean this is good? This feels terrible. He said, Dwayne, what is justification by faith? And it came right back to my mind. Justification by faith is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is impossible for him to do for himself. He said, Dwayne, what you just said is prophetic, son. You said he's grinding you to dust. That means he's getting ready to do for you 
what you could never do for yourself. And that's the first time it hit me. I mean, I read that quote, I preached that quote, I taught that quote to people. Testimonies of Ministers and Gospel Workers, 456. Oh, you want to get real deep? uh, Special Testimonies book, Special Testimonies B, book A, page 67, paragraph 2. I mean, that's how clearly I was quoting it to people. And here it is, I'm going through the experience, and it was like I never read it before. And I needed him to remind me. He said, you're going through the experience of what you've been telling everybody. My brothers and sisters, God needs to grind us down to powder. It's the only way you're going to get the victory. It's like victories are literally waiting in his hands. He's just waiting. When will you surrender? When will you stop taking charge of your life? When will you stop being so comfortable confessing how weak and messed up you are, and when are you going to finally let me do something about it? Seriously, this is, these are the things God is saying. Because some of us are good at confession. I was good at it. Yeah, I know, I'm messed up. Yeah, I know, I could be a pretty, you know, bullheaded guy when I want to. God said, listen, sometimes there's even pride in your confessions, Dwayne. Stop acknowledging what's wrong with you and let me fix you. God wants to do a rapid work. You understand that? And so me and my beloved son, my oldest guy, my firstborn, we're sitting in a room and we're talking with each other and I'm talking about this moment, this eureka moment I had. I said, Jared, I said, I get it. I said, I really get what God has been trying to do. And I said, Jared, I, gotta lie. I can't lie to you. I said, I finally let go. And I said that to my son. I said, I finally let go. I said, that's it, Jared. No holding back. I said, whatever God wants to do with me and to me, so it let it be done. And I said, and I'm amazed at how much a burden it's off my chest. And, you know, and I'm testifying to him. And as I testify to him, he in turn comes back to me. He says, you know, Dad, I've been holding back. And next thing you know, he made his decision. Full reign letting God have control of his life. I said, praise God, son. With tears, cried together, hugged each other, kneeled, prayed. Several days go by. And he says, Dad, still keeping the covenant. I never thought I'd see the day that my firstborn encourages me in Christ. And it is so beautiful to have your own son to encourage you to say, Dad, stay on track. Let's keep the covenant together. My brothers and my sisters, I'm just trying to show you this world has a death sentence. It's irrevocable. It's going down and it needs to. People are sick, they are dying, and a lot of people are hurting. And God needs us to wake up But then he wants to use us to help other people wake up. And the more that we cooperate with him according to his plan, he's going to show us wondrous things out of his law. I've read it. I've read it. I got all the promises lined up. And I noticed one very key thread with God. When you surrender all, 
then I'll do the miracle. Some of us are demanding God, where are you? Lord, where are you? Lord, you promised, you said. And we're saying all sorts of stuff to God and we're questioning him. And God is like, when you surrender all. God says, I will do what I promised. And so we are the holdup, like I told you, one of the most amazing scriptures, hasting the coming of the Lord. We are the holdup because we're still submitting to him our plan and commanding him to bless it. And he loves us enough to not do it. Praise his name. And so my question to you tonight is if you really want to see these things here addressed in such a way, there's nobody in here that's going to leave with victory unless we understand there are problems everywhere. And there's no solution except in him. And I realize that we did not get downright and dirty practical with it, and we're going to do that more so tomorrow. But my question to you is, how many of you understood the study tonight? How did, you, did you really get what God is saying to you? And my brothers and sisters, as you understand what God is saying to you, what he's saying is, is that I want control. I want, you to take the, I want you to take your hands off the wheel of your life. I want a blank sheet submitted to me. And I don't want to see any of your writings on it. God says, I am going to write out your plan. And I want you to learn to trust me that I will not hurt you. That the devil is not your friend. But Jesus says, but I'm a friend that sticks closer than even a brother. And when I write out the plan for your life, you will be happy. Because God is too wise to err. If you are at a place in your walk, now please don't get up if you don't believe this family. Don't do it. God doesn't want you to lie. Don't just do stuff for the show of all of our friends in front of us and family. If you get up, it's because you made your decision. If you are truly willing to give God a sheet, spiritually speaking, in other words, Lord, write out my plan, meaning whatever you tell me to say, I will do. Some of you, God is going to say, the career you're in right now, I didn't call you to that. You called yourself to that. You were fulfilling your parents' dreams or your own dreams. But God says, but if you let me write out your plan, I'll show you wondrous things out of my law. I'll satisfy you more than you've ever known the definition of that word satisfaction. You have nothing to fear for the future. Except as we forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. If you're really willing to let God write out the plan for your life, then the rest of this weekend will indeed be a blessing to you. And if you are counted amongst that number, so signify by standing to your feet. So signify by standing to your feet. Lord, write out the plan for my life. You're in charge. You're in charge. It's a hard decision when you have not cultivated the habit of trusting. But it's the most beautiful decision. 
And God has a lot of ways of getting our attention. He allowed a man to grovel on the ground for seven years to get his attention. And God can do that with us. Doesn't want to, but he can. And so, my brothers and my sisters, I just want to encourage you that as you take your stand for Jesus, I want you to know that he stands with you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He's getting ready to wrap this thing up here on this earth, and he wants to make sure we go home with him in peace. Let us go to our knees together in prayer if you can kneel, and if not, just bow your head reverently, and let's seal the decisions that we have made in a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you, Lord, that in such a time as this, you want to give a clear picture of what love really looks like. And it was through your own divine appointment that one of the clearest ways to do it was by that which exists in the home, especially between husband and wife. There are many of us who are single, and we're grateful that you can be a husband to those who are single. And they indeed are your wife. And Lord, we just pray that whatever our condition may be, single, married, even if we're living in some types of lifestyles that's truly not according to your will, I pray that as I asked you earlier to do a miracle, make us free. Loose us from the bondage of the devil. Show forth your power and show your hand to be mighty on behalf of your people. We come to you, O God, broken, in desperate need of your grace. And we pray that you'll please help us to speak from experience those wonderful words that says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We now commit our lives into your hands. Take our lives and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Use us in a mighty way and speak to our hearts. And may you transform us and help us to follow you as you write out the plan for our life. I pray this for all of those who stood up and I pray that you will break down those who did not until we finally get to that place that if necessary, like Nebuchadnezzar, we will truly realize how great is our God. Keep us faithful throughout the remainder of this night, we pray. And thank you for hearing our prayer. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.